This paper is based on fieldwork that I did in 1011, so it's quite uh, recent and look forward to your comments. Okay, um, the municipality of Jahajpur is the administrative seat of a sub-district, uh, Tehsil in provincial Rajasthan. With numerous government offices and a hospital, Jahajpur oops, there, <laughs> is a regional hub for services unavailable in villages. Its bus stand and streets are crammed with shopping opportunities of every kind. Rural and town lives have long intersected commercially in these lively markets. 21st century Jahajpur culture exists in perpetual engagement with national and transnational flows of goods, images, jobs, news, money, and much more. You can see, I uh, hope you can see the sign, Fit Hair Boss, that men's underwear everywhere. <laughs> Billboards are everywhere. Uh, it's networked both literally and figuratively. Yet, Jahajpur is undeniably and self-consciously a provincial place, uh, or as local people are more likely to say, using the English words, a backward area. I lived in Jahajpur from early August 2010 through the middle of June 2011. My fieldwork methods combine traditional participant observation with unstructured interviews, and I continue to work in close association with Bajiram Gujar, a government school headmaster, uh, with whom I've done collaborative ethnographic research since 1980. I refer to him throughout the text as Boju, but other names are changed. Uh, there are five sections to my talk. I'll describe Jahajpur as a kasba or market town and characterize its non-rural, non-urban nature. Uh, then I'll introduce two useful definitions and approaches to pluralism that will inform uh, the third chapter. Uh, segment of my talk, which is an ethnographic account of six festivals. A fourth section treats dramatic and traumatic recollected ruptures in Jahajpur's peaceful society. And in closing, I'll just offer some simple observations of everyday commonalities um, that I believe provide habitual foundations for ordinary pluralisms as the fabric of civic life. And I should say that Jahajpur, I've been working in the same region for 30 years, but this is, I worked in one village for, I suppose, 28 years or something. This is 25 kilometers away, and it's quite a different place in many ways. Um, Jahajpur is set between hills, as are many cities and villages in Rajasthan, a region long ruled by warring princes. Three important hilltop structures, two shrines, and a fort are easily visible from most parts of town. Uh, Malaji, and his temple on the very top of that hill, a regional hero god of the Hindu Mina community, is on one hilltop, and on the other hill stands the revered tomb of Gaji Pir. You can see that's the blue, or aquamarine, a Muslim saint who was also a warrior. Of course, more imposing than either shrine is the fort, dating back to the 15th century, and in ruins. Jahajpur's legendary origins reach all the way back to an episode in the first book of the ancient Hindu epic tale, the Mahabharata, the vengeful snake sacrifice of King Janamajaya. And in Jahajpur lore, this is a textual tale which has become embellished with additional local narratives and moral messages. I'm not going to tell the story now. You can ask me about it uh, in the discussion, and I will tell it then. It's something I've written another whole paper on. Uh, but all I want to stress here is that everybody knows it. So there is a common culture 
uh, represented by knowing the story of the snake sacrifice. I recorded the same story from uh, men and women, priests, merchants, laborers, 80-year-olds, 20-year-olds, Hindus, Muslims, and Jains, literate and non-literate people. So it is a shared oral tradition. The same people were a lot vaguer and far less in accord on more recent centuries. From snatches of published recorded history, I've learned that Jahajpur at various periods was ruled by Mughals, by Ranas of the great kingdom of Mewar, for about a century by the small adjoining kingdom of Shafra. So the fort changed hands often, but it's been deserted since around the time of India's independence in 1947. Jahajpur's market and residences were originally contained within a fully walled area. There are four imposing gates um, still standing, but in the old days they were locked at night and manned by watchmen. So the area that is today referred to as inside the walls forms the core of the kasba. Uh, and any expansion of the town takes place outside the walls. It's limited space. Kuzba has been roughly defined both by dictionaries and people I talk to as a settlement larger than a village but smaller than a city. And Jahajpur's has a population, I think in 2011 it's going to come out around 25,000. It really fits that bill. But the semantics of Kuzba engage more than demography. Most broadly speaking, uh, there are ineffable qualities that have to do with a deep history, a rich cultural heritage. And Kasbah is notably characterized by a non-rural consciousness manifest in a preoccupation with trade or business versus agriculture, these days with education. And a number of persons, when I asked them to list the characteristics of a Kasbah, um, stated first that one defining attribute was diversity, multiplicity of castes, if only secondarily of religions. Um, Mushiril Hassan, in his literary and historical study of Kasbah life in eastern UP, uh, also celebrates, there's a, he has a whole wonderful book about the pluralism of the Kuzba. Uh, this was in <coughs> colonial times. Uh, the plural nature of Jahajpur was one of the reasons I was drawn to study it. It's many Hindu temples, it's Muslim mosques and tombs of revered saints, it's ancient and living giant presence, it's numerically strong SC or scheduled caste and ST scheduled tribe populations. As is the case throughout Rajasthan, Hindus are the majority here, but inside the walls in the oldest part of town, uh, I was regularly giving estimates that the Muslim population was as high as 40%, which is much higher than most of Rajasthan. Uh, Jain families, here as elsewhere, are successful in business, influential in local politics. Um, and my focus uh, here being pluralism, I just want to also note that Keen issues of pluralism versus prejudice arise within religious communities in Jahajpur as well as across them. The fissures and negotiations between upper caste Hindu and disadvantaged groups, such as the former leather workers, butchers, and sweepers, engage identity politics and notions of primordial difference as acutely as religion and sometimes even more acutely. Similar divides exist among Jahajpur's Muslims. Uh, the majority are known as Deshwali understood as locals who accepted Islam during the Mughal period, um, and many of them downplayed their difference from Hindus. Um, they acknowledged shared roots, shared lineage names, shared cultural traditions. Hindus, members of the bourgeoisie especially, reciprocated. They described Deshwali Muslims as like us. Hindu othering, therefore, is directed at Pardeshi, or foreigner Muslims, although many lineages in this very diverse category have also lived in Jahajpur for generations. 
Uh, some Hindus labeled the Pardeshi Muslims as the rootless troublemakers, an attitude with a very evident class dimension as they're by and large poorer. Another factor to acknowledge, although beyond my scope here, is that individuals, no matter into what community they were born, possess many varieties of conviction. Uh, my focus here is on public rituals, which uh, are enjoyed by a large a portion of the population, but there are those who follow various gurus and paths um, who disapprove of such activities. Uh, so I'm just trying to cover all my exceptions. Okay, in terms of pluralism, these are not the only definitions uh, available. These are two that I have found useful. They both emerge from ethnographic and historical research in South and Southeast Asia. One uh, elegant view proposed by Michael Pellets defines pluralism as conditions or settings in which diversity is accorded legitimacy. Uh, the other, Living Together, which Shail Mayarams explored in the context of Ajmer, a city not too far from Jahajpur, uh, comprises, in her words, shared imaginaries and grammars that are rooted in everyday perceptions of being in the world. Jahajpur performs an innocent and idealized pluralism at national holidays, as is the case all over India. It can seem both corny and artificial, as when the school children dressed up as imagined Christian, Sikh, Hindu, and Muslims, even though the two former religions don't even figure in the local population. But I don't dismiss such performances, like civil behavior when it covers up deeper currents of distrust. I think such enactment, enactments may help to diffuse hostility and affirm a plural consciousness. In what follows, I'll engage both performed and organic manifestations of plural society at work and at play in Jahajpur. A focus on pluralism in the context of festivities could seem to highlight special rather than everyday relationships, but these events are very numerous. They're not exceptional, they're not anti-structural. I suggest viewing them as cultural performances, a term coined by the pioneering urban anthropologist Milton Singer to describe bounded activities in which people deliberately enact their culture as they wish it to be perceived, in other words, self-consciously. Jahajpur's menu of cultural performances is quite extraordinary. I found it dazzling at the beginning and exhausting or even numbing after a few months. But the festivals treated here I observed while still dazzled. My title, Bears, Sweetness and Light, bears the ironic edge that that phrase usually carries in English, the subtext that all of human life can't be conviviality. This is true in Jahajpur, needless to say as signed by the visible police presence in the streets whenever large groups gather in celebration by plenty of individual comments, by a few actual disturbances that I'll talk about. Historically, here as elsewhere, intercommunity violence has occasionally flared during public celebrations, but I hope to conclude that beautifying streets and shared suites do produce a good version of reality that, however sugar-coated, actually matters. Um, so I'm going to do an ethnographic tour of six festivals. And before plunging into the particulars of the festival events, I just want to note a broader context, um, which is the growth and proliferation of religious spectacle in India in recent decades. Uh, Mira Nanda's well-documented, if highly polemical, study, The God Market, uh, she argues that in the 21st century in India, there are more public displays of religion than ever. Uh, she focuses solely on Hindu manifestations of this phenomenon, which she views with extreme disapproval. Her general point on the efflorescence of public religion is perfectly true of Jahajpur. 
However, I might question her claim that some forms of politically backed Hinduism are inevitably the major perpetrators and beneficiaries of these phenomena, where other South Asian religions coexist with Hinduism, as is the case in Jahaj, where they also have increased displays and increased claims on public space. And I would add uh, that if, as Nanda also argues, these elaborate or excessive displays may be in part a result of globalization, uh, they're also evidently rooted in local circumstances. An old acquaintance of mine uh, who lives near Jahajpur uh, heard me exclaiming over the gaudy, entrancing splendor of Krishna's birthday, my first Jahajpur festival, and his response was to tell me that Jahajpur's public displays were so gorgeous because of its large Muslim population. This, he said, inspired competition, using the English word, uh, between Hindus and Muslims. Each community works harder and spends more to create vivid spectacles. Others, we question, confirm this more or less friendly rivalry understood to result in a public good uh, eye candy. So I'm looking at a limited uh, time period, a literal slice of Jahajpur's public life. Uh, I'll start, um, and this just goes through the dates. I start with um, Janamastami, uh, then Ganesh Chaturthi and Eid, which uh, took place, they were basically the same day, uh, followed by... Teja uh, Dashni, 17th of September, Jaljulanikyaris, the 18th of September, and finally uh, the Jain festival of Anantshatadashi. So, and I'll move through these quickly. Okay, so uh, the first two of these involved elaborate light decorations and junky or glimpsed divine scenes, both inanimate and portrayed by living people. The last two had town wide processions as their main feature. Eid, of course, is a collective prayer gathering. Uh, Teja's uh, festival combined a county fair atmosphere with spirit possession and divination. Um, And I sometimes draw on later events for comparative purposes. All of these festivals seem to be about religiosity in place. Festivals transform public places with lavish light displays, passageways made out of fabric, banners, arches, festoons of tinsel and sound. Processions traverse places, claiming them with feet, music, flags, and motor caravans. Uh, The Muslim holiday that falls within my time scope happened to be Eid, and the Eidgah is certainly a transformed space. Um, but it sits vacant for most of the year, just waiting for those intense hours. It's a space set apart, while other festivals um, work their magic on ordinary spaces. And I do want to say that there are at least three major Muslim processions that go through the same spaces as the Hindu ones, just not during my little time period. Uh, Some of these processions originated long ago in Jahajpur's... uh, princely pass, others are relatively new. Most tellingly, they have all become more elaborate in living memory. The emphatic old woman named Kamala told us that Jaljulani Gyaris, the most ambitious of the Hindu processions, had been going on since the creation of the universe, which is a possible exaggeration. But we heard frequently that the number of chariots, uh, the thrones for temple deities, had dramatically multiplied over the last few decades. This is partly because formerly excluded communities have joined. Um, When we asked one of Jahajpur's senior Muslim gentlemen about change in Muslim festivals, he required rather severely, there is no change at all. Islam is based on the Quran, and what is written in it is what we are doing. 
He was implying a contrast to Hinduism. Um, Muslim festival customs are consistent, even timeless, because there's a book that guides them. Nonetheless, he acknowledged that there were variable factors, such as someone's economic condition. This was in reference to Eid, but later in the year, as I saw the other Muslim processions, um, uh, they have, by all accounts, definitely changed. And of course, unlike Eid, they're not rooted in the Quran. Uh, My descriptions of these festivals are based on my own sensory impressions. I draw on knowledge gathered in interviews conducted either before or after, but not during the events in question. I attend here almost exclusively to the sociological import of these six religious holidays, rather than to any deeper religious experiences they may provide. So we'll walk through uh, less than three weeks of September, and that everything glitters for Lord Krishna, that's a quote from my field diary. Uh, Janamastami celebrates Krishna's birth in the prison where his evil uncle kept his birth mother confined and his miraculous escape to his foster home in Vrindavan. Janamastami was my first Jahajpur festival and none that followed left me so stunned. It featured these lavish light decorations at every Vaishnavite temple in town and school and political displays. I was awestruck by the ways the colored lights transformed the spaces I was just beginning to recognize rendering them totally unfamiliar once again. From our suburban colony of Santoshnagar, I lived about a 10-minute walk from the heart of town. Many people strolled along in groups. Everyone happily answered the pleasant rhetorical question, where are you going, with two words, uh, junkie dekna, to see the junkie. It gave me a simple sense of belonging, to repeat this phrase. Junkie are scenes, whether constructed with cardboard or human bodies, depicting the divine play of Krishna, Most utterly charming to me were the beautiful children inside a school building who were costume made up and posed in scenes representing well-known exploits in Krishna's story. And often the same scene, as you see there, uh, is replicated multiple times to give more children a chance to participate. When Bhaju and I uh, interviewed him a few weeks after the festival, the priest of the town's oldest Vaishnavite temple, Juna Charbuja, or Ancient Forearms, asserted that 10,000 people had come to take darshan on Janamastami. This is probably hyperbolic, but he also informed us that crowds did not cease pouring in until after midnight and that he had passed out approximately 100 kilos of kheer, uh, rice pudding. Good-natured crowds moved at a good pace from one display to another, and although there was pressing in the tighter areas, there was never any pushing. The only junkie not surrounded by crowds was that set up by the BJP, the Hindu Nationalist (laughs) Political Party, and I couldn't help feeling pleased at its forlorn condition, which seemed to testify to the local population's disinterest in divisive rhetoric. Uh, Maybe they weren't giving out sweets. (laughs) Um, Okay, moving on to Ganesh Chaturthi and Eid. It was the night of September 9th when Muslim authorities in Delhi announced that Eid would take place not on the 10th, as many had expected, but on the 11th. Due to this unpredicted, uh, originally unexpected convergence of calendars, the Hindu festival of Ganesh Chaturthi, Chaturthi and the Muslim celebration of Eid al-Fitr, the end of Ramadan's month of fasting, would converge. Newspapers and television broadcasts made a great deal out of this simultaneity, which had not happened in well over a decade. Hindu and Muslim talking heads appeared alternately on the screen, speaking benign platitudes. On the ground in Jahajpur, while we didn't see a lot of interactions between the two groups, 
we did experience a general atmosphere of what seemed to be genuine mutual goodwill. Ganesh Chaturthi is best known in Maharashtra, where it involves annually constructed Ganesh images who reside in homes and are grandly processed to be submerged in water on the climactic day. In Jahajpur, what it involved on the night of 10 September was a slightly less lavish repeat of Janamashtami's displays, except that now it was the Ganesh shrines and temples rather than the Vishnu ones uh, that put up lights and adorned icons and passed out uh, sweets, in this case, ladus. According to some elderly persons, I think that that's all relatively new. Uh, Ganesh Chaturthi and Jahajpur used simply to be called Danda Chote, stick forth, and little boys go around the market uh, beating on the front steps of shops with their shiny painted wooden sticks, which were made by the local carpenters. They make a racket until shopkeepers give them money and send them off. This is the old uh, practice, and it's still <coughs> done. The light displays at the temples are newer, uh, though I haven't been able to date their beginnings. Um, there was a gorgeous uh, almond cashew Ganesh uh, with a neon Lakshmi by his side uh, and heaps of ladus in front, uh, uniting the key festival components of sweetness and light. But in truth, when I conceived the title for this paper, I had in mind for sweetness the lovely milk noodle pudding that my Hindu research associates, Muslim friends, family, served us on the day of Eid. We went to the Eidgah around 8.30 in the morning. People were pouring in. The chairs were all taken, mostly by beautifully attired children. I was possibly the only adult female present as Muslim women in Jahajpur don't join in collective prayers. Uh, they were home preparing the festive foods that we were later to enjoy. But it seemed as if every Muslim adult male in Jahajpur and its vicinity were present to pray solemnly. Behind and to the side of the praying men and paying them absolutely no attention, as you can see, were children of all ages in their Eid finery, playing and even eating because young children are not required to keep the fast and there were snack vendors, a feature of almost every festival, uh, just near the entrance to the grounds. The kids, unsupervised except by distracted older siblings, were having fun. The atmosphere was mellow, the police were there, but seemed relaxed, as I was to learn, as their characteristic stance at festive events. As the Eid prayers closed, a number of Hindu political leaders arrived just on the right moment, at the edge of the Eidgah, where they stood and offered hearty Eid Mubarak to Muslims as they left the ground. The mullahs from Bangladesh, I was told, were honored by being mounted on rented horses led by Hindu owners. And for the rest of the day, Muslims welcomed Hindu as well as Muslim friends to their homes, overloading their plates with sweet milk puddings and salty chips. Moving on uh, to another two holidays that I've paired in some ways uh, to contrast them. Once again, calendrical contiguity juxtaposes two events almost as disparate as Ganesh Chaturthi and Eid, even though both are Hindu. This contiguity, however, is annual, uh, and both festivals have deep regional roots. When we asked people to comment on the relation between the two, few had much to say. However random uh, their calendrical uh, proximity, we can still view and contrast the 10th and 11th of the bright half of Bhadrapada and thereby learn something more about pluralism within Hindu traditions. Educated town persons insisted that Tejaji was a Lok Devata, a folk deity, and therefore not God. 
while they might make offerings to him, they ascribed him a lower rank in the scheme of things, which is both a cosmic scheme and a sociological one. Uh, the folk gods can be petitioned for assistance with specific human problems. Um, but I couldn't help remembering that says now you see my village town uh, differences that in the village uh, many devotees collapsed this kind of divine hierarchy. Uh, those who expressed pure devotion to a caste or lineage deity, they thought of that deity as God. They didn't say it's a folk god. The discourse of folk deity versus God struck me uh, as an urban overlay, dismissive of some rural devotional sensibilities. Um, and this theological debate uh, will be relevant to some contested moments in the history of the Jaljulani procession that I will get to. But still at the Tejaji Fair, uh, early in the morning, the shrine is newly painted. Tejaji is the god who cures snake bites. Um, we made a quick trip there, and before the priest became possessed and before the crowds gathered from rural areas, I actually saw many middle and upper middle class Jahajpurites, identifiable by their clothes, if not known to me personally, coming to make their offerings, uh, take darshan and leave. Later in the afternoon, uh, the crowds were indeed predominantly rural. And one of the main issues addressed at length by Tejaji's possessed priest had to do with a cow shelter in a nearby village that had been raided by thieves. And the priest uh, said that the drought which the area was experiencing uh, had been inflicted on this home area in particular. In Rajasthan, rain is very patchy. Um, the rural crowds listened with intense interest to all this, which wouldn't have compelled Kasba residents who visited in the morning. So you can see an urban-rural division enacted through timing and bus schedules uh, more than patronage. Outside the shrine was another lively world of transactions. Tejaji's fair included a temporary market. Okay, on Saturday, uh, September 18th, Hindus in Jahajpur celebrate uh, Jal Julani Gyaris, or Water Swing 11th. And this is a regional event, but not everywhere nearly as elaborate as it is here. One Brahmin explained it as a seasonal one. He said, now the month of Vadra is almost at an end, the water reservoir is full, the crops are ripe, and for this reason, out of happiness, we take God for a bath. Jaljulani, like Janamastami, is basically a Vaishnavite holiday. Its mythological charter is linked closely with Krishna's birth, and many people said that this uh, was actually Krishna's first bath, um, a ritual that is performed for human babies as well. So every temple in town, and this was more or less the same temples uh, that uh, celebrated, that decorated themselves for Krishna's birthday, sends a chariot out uh, to the water reservoir to bathe the deity. Um, and Jahajpur's festival is famous, the second best in the district, we were told. Uh, and, but many said that most of the crowd, unlike Tejaji, where people came in from the villages, most of the crowd was actually uh, from the town. The mood in the streets was mellow. Uh, people told us that when the lead chariot passed through Mosque Gate, uh, that could have been an opportunity for tension, but it was not. The police seemed at ease. Uh, they even smiled when I took their picture, and I felt I could see uh, for a moment beyond their uniforms to their own village origins. There were several bands playing, and one of them was the Gaji Pir Band, a Muslim band that plays for both Hindu and Muslim events. In conversations about Jaljulani, which is definitely Jahajra's most complex and ambitious Hindu procession, we heard little about religious difference, much more about 
negotiated space sharing among different caste communities. Altogether, in 2010, there were 26 temples in the procession. Uh, Joining last and leaving first were two chariots belonging to uh, scheduled caste communities, the former butchers Satya Narayan and the former leather workers Ramdeji. And I've written elsewhere uh, of the butchers' struggle to build a Vishnu temple in the heart of Jahajpur. Once they achieved that, it was less difficult for them to join the procession because their god was Vishnu. The leather workers had a greater struggle. A Hindu merchant told us that when they first wanted to take out Ramdevji's chariot, uh, people were, he said, the atmosphere was hot, it was tense, there was a lot of tension. But a leather, a for, a rag, let me just use their name, Rager, um, instead of saying former leather workers, they don't do leather anymore. Um, a lawyer from that community got legal permission. But the high caste Hindus kept telling us uh, that Ramdevji is not God. They used the same folk deity versus God distinction. And they said that they had given permission to take out a chariot, but not to have an image of Ramdevji. The chariot should have a stone, a salagramji, the smooth and oval stone representing Vishnu. So to our great surprise, when we looked into uh, the leather worker chariot in the midst of the tumult of the festival, there was Ramdeji in Murti form. You can see him there. No one objected, and I wonder if anyone even noticed, <laughs> um, except the people from that community. Okay, my last festival, Anant Chaturdashi. Jains are not in conflict with other communities. Numerically, a tiny percentage of India's population, they follow a religion which is distinct yet not alien from its ancient origins. Uh, many of the stores in Jahajpur's market still belong to Jain families. Few are poor, some are very wealthy. They may be resented by other groups um, for their prosperity, but Hindus don't see them as different from themselves. And in Jahajpur, uh, there's massive archaeological evidence uh, that they were among the original settlers of this area. These images, every time they do construction, giant images emerge, and they get put in the temple, uh, the giant temple. It was outside the temple where those images on the left are stored uh, that the procession began. In the neighborhood where I lived, uh, there was a giant woman sitting all day in her small uh, open storefront, I got to know her, and I knew that she participated in many of the Hindu practices. She joined her neighbors in all kinds of rituals dedicated to Hindu goddesses. But she was the one who kept telling me, don't miss uh, this procession. You've been to all the others. You've got to go to ours. There's going to be a golden chariot. So we went to the temple, as advised by our neighbor, um, and saw there was indeed a golden chariot. Um, it held a picture of Mahavira, the 24th Tirthankara, along with a small image of a seated ascetic. The giant's chariot was not multicolored and ornate as were the Hindu chariots on Jaljulani, producing at once an image more austere and more indicative of wealth, but the procession was not austere. It was long and loud. Uh, it went through the market street, halting at the usual places. There was a band and a singer who reminded me of Elvis Presley. Um, um, and he was holding a book, which made me think he doesn't know these word, the words to the songs by heart. I learned later he was a Hindu who participated because he liked to sing devotional songs, and he had learned the giant ones, reading them out of the book. Um, giant men and women uh, uniformly dressed on this day. This was a decision they made before the festival, and of course serves to mark their distinct identities uh, in a visual fashion, not customary for their community. 
Women of all ages joined in the dancing that followed the procession. Some non-Jain onlookers in the market made offerings, but uh, mostly if I saw anything, I saw indifference. Uh, the procession was going on, and here's a vegetable vendor uh, walking by, not paying the slightest attention to it. Um, and the police, of course, are on the job, as they are for every procession. Okay, this will be a fairly quick discussion of the history of uh, communal difference troubles in Jahajpur. Um, on festival days, as we have seen, even the police, who are fundamentally mistrusted by one and all, appear to relax and act like nice guys. Their perpetual presence is nonetheless a reminder that there are always other possible outcomes. Processions and festivals have historically been flashpoints for communal disturbances in India, and Jahajpur is no exception. I turn now to episodes of friction, specifically between Hindus and Muslims, moments where the delicate fabric of living together wore thin. Danga, uh, and this is the word everyone uses, uh, in, you look it up in the dictionary, it says riot. Uh, Danga means riot. It's the term uh, used to speak of three painful moments of Hindu-Muslim friction viewed by the people of Jahajpur as blemishes on their Kasbah's history. Two of these so-called Danga are specifically associated with festivals. In this section, I will therefore turn my attention from the bright to the dark side of public performative religiosity, consuming the bitter with the sweet. We gathered many confused reports of dates and causes for Dunga. When I was in the field, I made a chart, and it was much, much bigger and more complex than that. And I finally uh, talked to a local journalist, and I'm grateful for his help in organizing multiple contradictory oral accounts into an orderly list. So as far as I've been able to determine, there were two actual disturbances in the 1980s, and one, I'm calling it a proto-Dunga in 1947, um, both of them at politically traumatic time. Highly condensed accounts uh, follow. The first undoubtedly has the quality of legend rather than history. In 1947, um, apparently a British administrator had foolishly given, these are the words that come up in uh, interviews, given permission to Muslims to cut the branch of a people tree sacred to Hindus that was blocking the path of Atazia at Muharram. These are the tall, uh, <clears throat> symbolic tombs that are carried through the streets. Although there was no actual fighting, this marked the first occasion when bitter enmity between the two religious communities was publicly, collectively experienced, when the specter of violence crashing all around the nation loomed in Jahajpur's small kasbah. Uh, we were told that the Minas, uh, the tribal group which were, who were known as guards and soldiers, responded to an alarm, set uh, a drumbeat alarm and gathered, bearing makeshift weapons, and that the Muslims had fled temporarily to the hills and it all blew over without any actual fighting or destruction. Most disturbing in the recollections we recorded of this event was the use of identity markers uh, a prosperous old man from the artisan community who had seen this in his childhood said to us, they, the Minas, announced that Hindus should not wear caps but should tie turbans. So we know who is a Hindu. No Hindu should, wrap, should wear pajamas. He should wear a dhoti. Then we can tell who's a Muslim and who is a Hindu. And from these instructions, we can, of course, surmise that the two communities in the 1940s didn't necessarily distinguish themselves. 
Almost 40 years later, in 1984, a Muslim boy injured a Hindu boy in the course of a cricket game. Both teams were mixed. Rumors spread and were distorted. Disturbances followed, resulting in significant property damage and a curfew imposed on the town. In 1989, there were two confrontational events, both involving annual festival processions, Hindus carrying bricks as part of the nationwide Ram Janambhumi movement that carrying bricks to build a temple at Ram's birthplace in Ayodhya. Um, um, but this is before the destruction of the mosque. Uh, they tangled with the Tazia procession, uh, Islamic uh, procession. Later, Muslims threw stones at a Ramayana procession as it traversed their neighborhood. Eventually, stores were burned, but never within the main market, I was told, where, of course, if one store was burned a lot, the neighboring stores, and some are owned by Hindus, some are owned by Muslims, and every, people emphasized, never in the market. Again, a severely enforced curfew was imposed. We were told there were merciless police beatings, both of perpetrators and innocent bystanders, demonstrating effectively that the government would not tolerate communalism expressed in violence. Local government exerts multiple pressures to ensure that Jahajpa remains dunga-free. Today, every procession must get permission from the police and has to go over their route and timings in advance and submit it all in writing. So when I showed you that um, slide saying there could have been tension when they go through the mosque gate, uh, in fact, they now make sure that they never take a Hindu procession through that gate during the prayer times, during Muslim prayer times. So they do these very simple things. They schedule it all. Um, they are also required to hold a pre-event peace meeting <coughs> involving leaders from all communities and focused on maintaining civility and order. At every single festival, as we have seen, there is a quiet but alert and visible uniformed police presence. Jahajpur's adult citizens from diverse communities express considerable regret that their town has a reputation for Dunga. Both Hindus and Muslims have asserted to me and Boju using strikingly similar phrases that whatever happened was never all that bad. And I have three representative statements extracted from interviews about Dunga in Jahajpur. Actually, I picked ones that I had pictures of the people, so you can see. Um, an elderly Hindu man, Kalyan Mali, formerly a produce gardener, lacking school education, struggling to make ends meet today, put it very poignantly, telling us in the past Muslims and Hindus lived like brothers. They had affection, prem bhav, for one another. But now it isn't like that. A stone fell into this love. Oh, he was the oldest uh, person I talked to about these. Uh, lovely, I call him Lovely. His store is called Lovely, and that's become his nickname. <laughs> Lovely, uh, a college-educated Hindu Brahmin shopkeeper, energetic and vital, tried to dismiss the reverberations of Jahajpur's past disturbances, declaring almost defensively, so, it is true, there was a danga, but the people of Jahajpur did not beat one another, there was no murder, no knives, still, they call it danga. Nobody hit anyone, no one even slapped another person. And he was probably the one who expressed the most. He felt that business in the market uh, was still, that it was damaged at that time. People decided to shop in other kasba, the people from the villages. Let's not go to Jihad where there might be trouble there, uh, even though it was in the 80s. And I don't honestly know, uh, but I heard that from, from others as well. 
the Brahmins' claims are echoed in similar language but with more pious overtones by a Deshwali Muslim man around 60 years of age, a government service servant with an eighth grade education who had dedicated his life to Gaji Pir. He told us, Jahajpur's had so many danga, but no one even slapped another person. Some think this is Gaji Pir's grace. There was no terrible destruction, just some stores and cabins were burned. But we have had so much ill fame, Badnam, that the news even reached Delhi. Still, no one even slapped another person. Not even a drop of blood was ever spilled. As the very first remembered trouble was in 1947, in the wake of partition, only the very elderly today are able to recollect a time of pure love preceding it. Although we could attribute this to a good old day's nostalgia, I'd like to value the truth of collective memory, which was often evoked with a swell of feeling in voice and facial expression, um, both from Hindus and Muslims when of that generation, that older generation, um, speaking about how well the communities got along. Younger people, in my experience, are edgier, more suspicious, products of a more dangerous era. Nonetheless, the majority of Jahajpur citizens of all ages um, are habituated in many ways to a plural social universe, to shared commercial and residential spaces. And I am coming to my last, my concluding section from festival to every day. So working with these two definitions, uh, shared imaginaries and granting legitimacy. I'm going to point here to some of the, uh, just answering, Shail Myram asked the question, are there shared imaginaries and grammars that are rooted in everyday perceptions of being in the world? So I've been showing you festivals, which, as I said, happen all the time, but now I want to look at, at uh, some other, well, these are everyday aspects of festivals and then a few uh, just ordinary days. Um, and this was just came out of my photography, really. Festivals revealed shared grammars from the sparkling new clothes uh, worn by children. And this one, I did a whole, uh, none of it's written up yet, but I did about three months research on the market. And all the ready-made uh, shopkeepers said, we do our best business before Diwali and before Eid. Um, and so the people shop for new children's clothes. Uh, to the, so the sparkling new clothes worn by children, the omnipresent balloon sellers and snack vendors, balloon sellers at a Hindu festival, <laughs> balloon sellers at Maharam, uh, to the seeking of physical blessings by going under, respectively, uh, the divine chariots at uh, Jaljulani under the Bewan and under the Tazia. I didn't talk about uh, the Tazia procession here. It comes a couple months later, or it did the year I was there. Um, but that same idea that you get a blessing by going under the thing that is being carried through the streets. Although I also heard a little bit of uh, divisiveness there because Hindus go under the Tazia. They think they'll get a blessing, but they kept saying Muslims don't go under <laughs> They don't go under our chariots. We go under theirs, but they don't go under ours. Um, but in any case, it's a shared grammar. Outside of festival time, we encounter many small examples of shared material worlds. In Hindu living rooms, the TV is located near framed pictures of the deities. 
In Muslim living rooms, it is located near framed pictures of fruits and flowers. Hindus keep basil plants on their roofs and worship them as the goddess, as you can see by that red uh, offering that's made to Tulsima. So I was really surprised to find when I visited a Muslim family that they also had basil plants on their roofs. Uh, and when I said, why? And they said, well, Hindus think it's a goddess, but we think it's medicinally useful. We had, but the set, the pots are the same, the plants are the same. We had one delightful interview with a Deshwali Muslim comparing Hindu and Muslim wedding customs. Parts of the weddings are the same uh, with modulations, such as the differently adorned grooms arriving on identically adorned horses. And of course the horses, um, the, the people in the horse rental business would be the same. They would go to the same people. Others are, are different, but they are... Hindus deliver the first wedding invitation to the god Ganesh. Muslims deliver it to the dargah of a peer of the peer in Ajmer, and so we were able to get a whole collection of parallel things. Hindu leaders scrupulously attend every Muslim event, both those scripturally chartered, such as Eid, as I already showed you, and those associated with local Muslim saints, such as the two annual Urs. This, too, is a form of granting legitimacy, even if it is equally blatant, self-interested, vote-seeking behavior. Uh, the Ram Leela procession in 2010, once a target for stone-throwing uh, when it passed through the Muslim neighborhood, the year I was there, it was formerly, uh, sorry, formally welcomed by one of the Muslim committees, which, in a fashion completely similar to that of several diverse Hindu groups, erected a fancy archway. Their sign used distinctively Urdu words, but was written in the common Indic script of Devanagari. Uh, festival and everyday examples demonstrate a shared culture, a shared commercial world, a modulated shared aesthetic. And I suggest that these sharings testify to an ongoing history of living together. During the three-day Muslim extravaganza celebrating the saint, Gaji Pir, when his gorgeous coverlet processes through Hindu neighborhoods, Hindu women dart outside to deposit money in it. This is primarily a devotional expression, but in the language of this chapter, it testifies to granting legitimacy as well as shared grammars of religious expression. And that's my last picture. It was Boju, a Hindu, who took pains to capture this fleeting action with his camera. The omnipresence of police at Jahajpur festivals is due to the town's official classification as sensitive, a place where trouble can happen. This is explicitly due to the high percentage of Muslims and the long shadow of the two Dunga that took place in the 1980s. And um, I have, since I still have a couple minutes, I'll say, though I don't have slides to illustrate it, that I was there during the World Cup soccer uh, when, of course, uh, there was a match between India and Pakistan at which the prime ministers of India and Pakistan were together watching it. And in Jahajpur, people watched at stores uh, where TVs were set up, and as the, mat the cricket matches are so slow, <laughs> but as the match progressed, uh, Toward the end, the police came to the market and they, they chased everyone home. They said, you've got to shut the stores, lock them down, go home. We don't want anyone in the streets. 
whoever wins, you know, they were afraid of trouble. And I found that talking to people the next day that they were really uh, upset about this, not, not obviously... Um, People were happy that India had won. They were angry that and the police had shut them down. And they, and they said things like, you know, well, if the prime ministers can watch together, why do they think we can't? And I thought that was interesting. Uh, but it's managed uh, pluralism. It's what um, Anne Bigelow, in her recent book on a Punjabi town where they're, which is famous for there being no uh, killing during partition. She talks about what she describes as managed pluralism, and I think that's what's happening in Jahajpur too. But I've tried to demonstrate here in fair detail celebrations in public space provide both formal and informal indications of ordinary pluralisms. These phenomena are woven into Jahajpur Kasba culture and offer a vision of a diverse and peaceful community that is real, that doesn't mean that it's invulnerable to rupture. As Jahajpur town becomes increasingly global, its pluralisms could be further undermined. As is well known, national and transnational Muslim and Hindu movements and politics deliberately seek to circumscribe identities and to reject or eliminate plural worldviews. Such messages have certainly reached Jahajpur, but do not appear to me, although my experience is limited, to have taken deep root. Not yet. I imagine this could be attributed to Jahajpur's rich cultural soil, characterized by a wholesome, dense tangle of imaginations, practices, and interactions, in which it is difficult for divisive forces to sprout and spread. For the time being, if public religiosity in Jahajpur may not be all sweetness and light, neither has it lapsed into bitterly divisive dogma and darkness. Thank you.